0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, everybody, and you're very welcome to our Signpost Series webinar this morning. My name is Andy Boland, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so as we discuss and debate another issue on farming and the environment. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the help and support that we get from our partners in producing this series, uh, the National Rural Network, uh, Food Drink Ireland Skillnet and Dairy Sustainability Ireland. So, this morning we're going to begin a series, really, for the next four weeks, looking at our wonderful and beautiful uplands. Uh, The people who work there and the people who live there. And I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Katrina Douglas, Katrina is from the National Parks and Wildlife Service, and also by Catherine Keena, our Countryside Specialist, and Catherine is known both in the uplands and indeed in the lowlands. Katrina and ladies, sorry, you're both very welcome and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks Andy. Hi, hi Andy. Thank you for inviting me. You're very
0: welcome. Katrina, you're an ecologist with the... National Parks and Wildlife Service, and you're going to talk to us this morning about the ecological value and the condition of our uplands. Um, You might just begin by telling us a little bit before you get into your presentation about what you do and how you how you finished up working in the uplands.
1: It's a long and torturous route. Uh, I started working in the Wildlife Service in the 80s, so it's a long time ago, and I was working on field surveys for about 11 years doing um, uh, botanical surveys of the wetlands. Um, The Wildlife Service had been established in the 70s, so uh, there was an awful lot of groundwork to be done to... um, identify the biodiversity areas that should be protected. So I was involved in that work in the 80s and started working on raised bog surveys when um, the EU uh, asked us what we were doing about our raised bogs because we hadn't any knowledge at that point except for on uh, forba had been you know, surveying sites. So we did big surveys then and then I moved on to working on the blanket bogs um, and then when I got a permanent position, then I sort of graduated a little bit towards the uplands. Um, although, you know, I'm essentially a bog woman, <laughs> oh. but I've been stretched to the uplands. Let's put it, let's put it that way. And uh, it's quite uh, a, a large resource, you know, uh, so I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but I will just tip in here and there.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Katrina, you might begin to share your your presentation with us.
1: I'm just going to talk about the uplands and um, the habitats there and something about the flora. Um, And um, I'll give an outline uh, of of the talk now. So um, some definitions of what an upland means. and because it can include habitats that um, you know occur in the uplands but also blanket bogs and peatlands and heathlands can be considered you know in the broadest definition upland habitats because they occur in uh cool cool climates Um Then the range of variation, just just something about the, uh, you know, geomorphology, uh, geology and altitude very briefly. Then listing of the habitats that occur and uh, the standard classification in Ireland now used is is, uh, called Fawcett. It's after, um, it's Julie Fawcett's work, Um, so it's often called Fawcett classification classification and then the annex habitats as listed in the interpretation manual of the habitats directive then the um, something about uh, the flora just again touching on some species then something on the survey which I'm project managing it's survey of upland plant habitats mapping uh, habitats and assessing condition and something about condition uh, methodologies and uh, habitat pressures uh, impacts on blanket bogs see i'm down to the bogs again uh just an overview of, of legislation um touching on carbon uh peatlands and climate uh multiple benefits of restoring peatlands and some of the needs and challenges maybe funding opportunities and ones. so without further ado uh so definitions uh, this is the cummer Mountains, by the way, that uh, Gumpf lock in their um, credit to the surveyors on the Upland Survey. Um, sub-montane land is considered uh, to be that line between altitude 300 and 600 metres. And montane land is, is the highest, it's above uh, around 600 metres and uh, for the national survey of upland habitats which is that's the acronym there national survey of upland habitats unenclosed land um above the 150 meter contour and associated lowland peatlands uh, are considered in the definition of uplands for our purposes because you know these sites are connected and the habitats are connected so they're not uh, Isolated uh, entities. And on the Western seaboard, there are extensive lowland blanket bogs and associated peaklands, such as the wet heats, uh, transition mires, fens, um, uh, flushes, and the like. And just a stat there about 14% of the public of Ireland is, uh, lies over the 150 metre contour. So, um, sorry. That's, that's a mistake, it's 200 meters, sorry. It's probably a lot, quite a bit more over uh, 150. It could be up to 19%, but I'm not sure. That should read 200 meters. Um, then just the, uh, giving you just a few of the peaks um, that are above 600 meters. So these would be montane. Uh, the highest being Carinthul, uh, Lugnaquilla, the highest in Leinster, it's 9 to 5 metres. Carinthul, 1,039 metres. Haven't measured it, haven't been up to the top, disgracefully. Um, For what I might yet, uh, Galtimore, that's the highest inland mountain range in Tipperary, Limerick. Uh, nine eight Millray, the highest in Connacht, very large mountain range. Eight hundred, just over eight. The Comrades in Watford, uh, of which this image is shown. Uh, seven nine two Mangleton in Kerry. Seven eight two Cropatrick, iconic mountain. Seven six four Kipure in Wicklow, the mast uh, five seven five uh seven and then there's one at the bottom there it can't see on my screen properly yeah crocon and Ackle. so um that's just giving you a few and there are quite a lot of mountain ranges in ireland uh, I'm discovering and they're all around the edge of of the country well mostly uh, there's quite a few inland ones maybe um and more in the south uh midlands and southwest Variation uh, well, uh, geography so they're located all around uh, the country, really, but if, uh, a lot of them are coastal, and um, with some uh, significant exceptions like uh, sheep Blooms and the Mullica and uh, the Galtes, as was mentioned, and Quilca near and up in, in uh, Leitrim Cavan. Geology can vary from acidic, chalk, lime, rock you have. Um, granites over in, in Galway and Wicklow, and then in uh, Kerry you have old red sandstone and um, obviously the barn is limestone but I won't be talking about the burn because it's sort of exceptional and uh, I don't work on it. A lot of work's been done on the barn so it's not in this talk. Um, so there are hard metamorphic rocks, there are shales and soft uh, kind of deposits as well. There's glacial deposits, there's uh, peatlands, lands, peak cover, uh, uh, glacial chill, um, you know, esker sort of gravels as well, altitude I've coverage already, uh, geomorphology. Well, the topography and the shapes because the land is glaciated, most of it, uh, you know, you have incredible corries you know, hanging lakes and valleys and, um, you know, moraines and all sorts of deposits. Distance from the sea, ocean history that can be called, you know, it can affect the climate, the humidity, um, you know, temperature um, and rainfall. Uh, so that that has the significance for the ecology. Slopes can be steep or gentle uh, again. A uh, huge ecological effect, free draining or, you know, waterlogged if they're flat aspect, you know, north, south, east, west, north and east would be more humid, south and west, maybe more um, wind exposure and sun, um, warmer, and then climate uh and microclimates, because of all those variations, Uh, temperature, rainfall, humidity are important, and habitats and vegetation responding to all that, uh, as well as to land use. Um, So moving on then to upland habitats, Uh, upland in in the biggest sense, for I am including the associated low-louch Uh, In the west, as I said, there are extensive lowland blanket bogs, lakes, and the like. In Mayo, you know, Donegal, um, Gary, um, Galway, um, Clare even. So we have two systems here. This is the national sort of classification system for habitats, and a lot of people use this now. It's very, very useful. And then some of our habitats are listed for protection under the EU Habitats Directive, and they're called, we call them Annex 1 because they're listed on Annex 1 of that directive. And uh, these are the habitats that we are including in the upland survey for um, condition assessment. Uh, We would be mapping a lot of these habitats when we're doing our surveys. Um, however, where we do assessments, we're focusing on, on these, which are the heats, uh, wet heats and the dry heats, the alpine and boreal heats, which are up at the higher altitudes, um, a kind of heathy grassland called uh, species-rich nardus grassland. Um, then we have our bog, uh, blanket bog. Active means it's you know forming peat. It's wet. It's it's uh, you know there's good vegetation cover and it's in good condition. Um, But both habitats, even if it's degraded, it's still considered Annex habitat. Ideally, we want to return you know degraded habitats to peat forming. Or active habitats. Uh, Transition mars, you know, they're they're just uh, in between fens and bogs or lakes, you know, that are colonizing with rafts of vegetation. So you know they're dangerous to walk on, but they've rare species uh, and they're in Annex habitats. This habitat called Ringespruin, it's it's just the uh, uh, It's um. Oh, it's a small plant that grows uh, on the edge of pools and in wet depressions in bogs. So it's like a sub sub habitat of bog. It really shouldn't be a separate one, but it's considered to indicate deep peat. So, you know, the EU have said it's very important. Uh, Alpine fence, well, groundwater, you know, influence is felt here on these, especially and calcareous influence. They can be very species rich, and the ones that occur within the bogs, you know, are protected from lateral effects of fertilizer, say, on land use, intensive land use in, in, you know, many instances, not in all instances, but as a result of that, they can be in very uh, good condition, um, you know, compared to maybe fens distributed to the general countryside, uh, which would have a lot um, so then you're getting up into the higher altitudes, you're getting scree slopes, they can be limestone or acidic, calcareous slopes or, uh, you know, limestoney ones and the siliceous are the acidic rocks, so they're more poor, you know, they don't have as much mineral to, to give the plants, but they have their own characteristic uh, flora. Uh, just to say, we're not talking about woodlands today because, you know, there's so many uh, uh, specialisms, really. Um, so we, we're we not. Um, and, you know, there are, wor- of course, woodlands in the uplands, uh, as well as uh, forestry, kind of for forestry. Lakes, again, I'm not touching on lakes because that's a whole area, specialist area. Grasslands, uh, in general, I'm not, but there are some grasslands that we are talking about. Uh, they kind of... Uh, they mix in with dry heat as well, acidic grassland. And there's a species for short grassland up there, which is also kind of linked with dry heat. Uh, cladium fens, again, they're almost more like uh, lakes and uh, limestone pavement, the barn. So they're the things I'm not talking about. So, moving on then, just, uh, the elements of the flora, you know, from the, I mean, it's it's a vast resource really when you think about it, and with such variation and very specialised species, um, there are montane species. Maybe we don't have the high mountains of Scotland, but we have some of the montane elements. We don't we don't have um, a lot of the alpine elements that they have, or the Arctic, but we do have some, and we have a lot of Atlantic bryophytes in common with Scotland uh, mosses. Uh, liverworts um, and more so perhaps than would be found in England and Wales so I think it's that hyper oceanic climate the humidity and everything coming off the Atlantic and the clouds and everything that uh, and exposure that can support these um, species so um If you looked at uh, one of the reports from the survey you would see such a long list of mosses and liverworts you know with uh, exotic latin names and uh, english names uh, that are very colorful and poetic that have been applied to them i don't know by who but it's worth having a look at them but it would take us quite some time to go through but i'm just illustrating how rich you know uh, the uplands are in lower plants uh, but not just lower lower plants, uh, also higher plants. Uh, dwarf shrubs would be uh, very typical because a lot of well, on our blanket bogs they are naturally treeless because they are so nutrient poor. Uh, they're deep peat, um, so when they're that that way, deep peat, acidic, nutrient poor. Uh, actually naturally treeless, they're a kind of climatic climax, they're in equilibrium, well they were with our natural climate, who knows uh, now if they're in equilibrium, they're probably, you know, intending not to be, uh, that's why we need to get them back in good condition. Um, but uh, dwarf shrubs like heather, you know, bilberry, um, all the different kinds of heathers, uh, bulk myrtle, and even species like um, Cowberry, Vaccinium v 2 it's also called lingonberry. it's quite uh, locally distributed north of the country. Uh, so they are like the s- small shrubs of, of the uplands and uh, you know they offer shelter and um, they help to, to bind even soil and you know reduce erosion or yeah just they they're evergreen as well in winter um and they can be great for uh, species, uh, browsing for uh, animals uh, out on the hills um so sedges and cottons are very typical flowering plants uh, also are very you know typical as well in rock crevices and gullies and shady places uh bryophytes i mentioned before and the key groups sphagnum which is a real peat forming species uh, uh group i should say and there's probably about 30 to 35 just under 35 species i think in ireland but more to be found Definitely, so work has to be done there. Uh, lichens, the sort of reindeer lichen, people call them. They're very typical, but uh, also on the tops you get uh, Setraria islandica, Icelandic uh, lichen, but that's quite uh, local. Uh, then you have a large, leafy liverwort community. I'll talk about that later. It's it's localised on very humid areas, uh, shady. So then there are uh, protected species under the uh, Habitats Directive and protected species under our wildlife acts. Uh, then there's very specialized species to cope with. Um, extreme environment of a bug, you know, it's, it's exposed, it's acidic, it's waterlogged, it's nutrient poor, very little nitrogen and phosphorus. So plants have evolved insectivorous uh, methods uh, to gain nutrients, so sundews, Butterworts and bladderworts are three of the species, uh, species groups that uh, trap insects. Uh, so they're they're fascinating little uh, creatures, <laughs> and um, getting their own back on the uh, insect world. Uh, boreal species and boreal relic species. Yeah, there's some very unusual species that are more typical in the tundra and boreal zones, or at the edge of the tundra, maybe not quite the tundra. And they're occurring in niches here and there in refuges in, in our bogs, in some of our fens and, and the, you know, mountains. And then there's a strange group of pe- uh, species called the Lusitanian. Uh, species because they uh, occur, well, they're usually on the heats, but they have a an, a disjunct distribution and mostly absent from Britain, some maybe on the Hebr- outer, inner Hebrides, uh, but they're found in Spain, northern Spain and Portugal and typically southern and western Ireland. So was it the Spanish coming on the ships, you know, and trading with Ireland, you know, or did they survive here from Some early periods. There's a lot of work and interest in this curious group, and one of them there is St. Dabioxide or Daboisia Cantabrica, which is the Spanish name, and you can see the connection there. And it's much bigger bell on it than our uh, crossleaf teeth, which I have a picture of down here. And then that's our bell heather in the background there. So you can see this thing, it's absolutely beautiful. It's uh, very typical in Connemara with uh, low um, gorse, you know, the autumn flowering gorse, the dwarf gorse, the gallii. So it's kind of coastal heat, maybe it likes warmth, you know, it, it seems to, uh, it's not up on the mountains. There's another heather, Erica, Regina, it's in Mayo and maybe somewhere else. Also it was called Mediterranean heath, and it's called Irish heath now, I believe. Marquise heath, the Lusitanian butterwort, that's one of the um, uh, carnivorous plants. Uh, The large flowered one, typical in Kerry, uh, but in some places outside Kerry. uh, Again, another insectivorous species, uh, Saxifraga. spatularis is St. Patrick's cabbage, and that's in our in our mountains, in rock crevices, and the Kerry lily, a very local uh, in, in Kerry heats. So moving swiftly on, um, leafy liverworth, the, uh, these, um, in contrast, this is an interesting community, in contrast to mountain areas of England and Wales, Irish mountains, here. Much of the oleanic elements of the Scottish montane vegetation, including high abundance of uh, it's called woolly hair, moss, sometimes racometrium lanuginosum. You'd probably notice it, it can cover large areas on top of hummocks and in eroding areas too on the hags. And the presence of mixed northern hepatic mat, a very localized vegetation of large leafy of north and east mountain facing slopes. Uh, Rory Hodden, Micheline Sheehy, Skeffenden published work on that and that's just showing you some of the species there and they're beautiful red color and the leaf warts are very very big mostly leaf warts are tiny but these ones are, are not so um, just uh mentioned sphagnum species earlier, and this is just to show that we're still discovering new species of sphagnum, which is amazing. Uh Rory, Dr. Rory Hodd is a fantastic uh expert on mosses and liverworts, and he's worked on some of our surveys. And he discovered in 2020 in the Shlivochi Mountains in one of the SECs there. Uh, this, this species, uh, Sphagnum magus, and it grows in pools, and we have very few pool species, in fact. Uh, we have probably three, maybe, uh, Sphagnum species in pools. Well, we have typically Cuspidiatum, which is often count, called the drowned kitchen moss, because it looks like matted fur, but uh that's not a nice name really <laughs> it doesn't conjure up a good image uh but then we've another one a uh, cowhorn moss and that's a very good description of it um and now we have sphagnum majus here so that's great credit to uh, doctor Rory hard he's a fantastic um uh, botanist and, and we we definitely need more of, of ro- more Rorys. um so just looking at protected species, we have under the protection order, under the wildlife act, we have a slender bog cotton and flushes and bog. We have a club moss, pole, the yellow inojata, on the edges of lakes, uh, uh, St. John's wort uh, species uh, on the edges of lakes. And it just jumps here. it's a type of grass, I think tough to tear grass. And they're all and they there in Connemara. Uh, I, know she's, I know these from Connemara and this probably as well, and this one, but probably in other places. Um, and then these are some of these boreal relic species. They're in base-rich flushes. Um, they're quite unique systems. Some of them are very large, especially in, in Mayo, uh, and they're associated with the calcareous uh, glacial drift, eskers. And like, and, you know, water repercolates sort of percolates through them and brings out the calcium, and then sort of filters through the bog, over, you know, flat bog, and then long distances, so meandering. You might see reeds, uh, you know, as a signal of a flush. But when you look closer, then all these things are here. Um, so Polygonum squarrosa was, you know, extremely rare in 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 Europe, I think, and and the. Maybe in the UK, maybe not in the UK, but it was discovered by Neil Lockhart, Dr. Neil Lockhart, just a bryologist, MPWS out in one of these flushes, and another, it's uh, liverwort, and another of those uh, stromatipmonite tones again, uh, just showing you scarce and declining species of calcareous fens, usually those which are rich in sedges and brown mosses. It's very rare in southern Britain but remains tolerably frequent in upland mires in the central Scottish Highlands and the borders in northern England where it tends to grow uh, where flushes spread onto flat ground and it's you know there's quite a few locations for this one uh, you know in the west of these flushes but it's still very local species. Uh, I think it does occur in Pollardstown Fen as well um so these are species that are typical northern you know areas and they're found in you know out mayo it's very exposed sometimes i think mayo is out under you know when i'm out there if you're out there in air's head on a windy day <laughs> in winter um and another fantastic find again uh, a dr creva muldoon rest in peace and rory how oh, dr rory discovered rediscovered this moss in Baysridge flush on the ox mountains and it was out in the Bordenamo bogs, uh, you know, at Onini, and in, in a flush there that uh, was kind of survived and protected from the, you know, milled that happened over about 6,000 hectares of that land. Uh, but unfortunately, the hydrology, you know, as you can imagine, was impacted by the drainage, and this species disappeared, but it was refound. Really uh, during the Upland Survey in 2012, I think, in the Ox Mountains, and again, fantastic. So these um, boreal relic species may be relic of the early post-glacial period, surviving these little refuges, you know, out in the bogs or out in the mountains, and, you know, so they're rather special, and just... Finishing of annex two species, uh, marsh saxifrag, again out in the bogs here, mayo in flushes, uh, shining sickle moss, uh, slightly basin rich flushes, and uh, an annex two species of lakes, typical in Connemara and mayo and other western seaboard or peatland lakes. Um, So, uh, Millway-Chiefvierve compound, a massive range and uh, that was surveyed in the upland surveys uh, and so just some of the tip, that's an alpine club moss, so you'll only find this little uh, uh, one down here on the left, up on the tops, you know, of, of the on the higher mountains. Um, it's in Wicklow, it's actually on Capure. Uh, it's probably over, you know, those uh, 600 uh, meter high uh, mountains i think uh, when i was pure that it is yeah, uh, uh, so here then uh, we have this is an interesting because these are areas that are inaccessible to grazing animals and it, they just illustrate really maybe if you know there wasn't the grazing wasn't as heavy we we might have um a kind of more lush uh, vegetation on our hill Admittedly, uh, these are in crevices and rocks, so they can kind of water supply coming creeping down the rocks and probably some extra nutrients as well. Um, and they're, you know, there's, there's uh, it's called um it wasn't thought uh, to be in the uplands, it's a tall herb community, and tall herb was thought to be just lowland community, but uh, this has lately been discovered as an upland version of tall herb. And I know you know on the continent and uh, some of the mountains have very herb-rich meadows and, um, you know, it, it just begs the question, you know, uh, the, the effect of grazing and uh, on on some of our hills, uh, some of this probably stunted, and this is St. Patrick's cabbage, one of the Lusitanian species that I mentioned, uh, growing in a crevice in, in the rocks on Willoway. And I'm not really going to talk about Fauna and you know, this is very uh, blurry on this screen and uh, Here's labyrinth spider in heath. It's on yulex, on dwarf gorse. Uh, it's not actually going to pounce on the passerby, but uh, it's protecting its eggs in that huge, huge web. So it's good parent. And here's the caterpillar of the um, fox moth, which uh, you will often see on heather, on the bogs, and in great numbers at certain times of the year. Um, just to say, they're fantastic fun on the mountains, and I won't dwell on them. You know, common frog, lizard, hare, Eve badger uh, can be out on the hills. Fox, um, red grouse is very characteristic because it's called. It's the heather hen, feeds on heather, nests in heather, and that heather is essential for it. Um, me, mountain pipit or I think meadow pipit. Uh, you know, it's um, nests again in on the ground. A lot of th- the species nest on ground of the need good vegetation and cover and uh, safety from predators. Uh, golden plover, its wader, also out in the hills, has a beautiful lonesome call. I haven't seen it for some years, but, uh, you know, they, these are in decline. But there's a lot of work going on to try and recover uh, these species. Iconic species, kestrel, raven, we all know the raven, uh, otter, uh, Otter is, I've seen otter on the bog in Mayo, it, it goes between pools and lakes, and then it connects out to the river, rivers and down to the bays. So yeah, it hunts and forages across wet bog, um, you know, frogs and, and the like, I suppose. Uh, freshwater pearl also mentioned cause it's in the river systems that come off the mountains. So whatever we do on our hills, uh, you know, can release silt. And unfortunately this uh, sensitive filter feeders suffering to salmon uh, spawning eggs are very sensitive to silt and they're in a lot of our western rivers and again uh suffering vertigo is a snail a tiny tiny snail but an species and very important little creature and an indicator you know of flushes and certain types of conditions um Uh, Chuff are also in inland cliffs. Uh, Artichar is a kind of trout, a rare type of trout, I think it's in some of the uh, quarries, but it's disappearing from others. It's very sensitive. Uh, Greenland white fronted goose was very common feeding on the wet bogs, but unfortunately it's declined on the bogs. I think more uh, populations in Wexford on the grasslands, but there may be some small flocks on certain sides still and then there's a lot of birds of, of prey and then of course the curlew and other waders um, you know they um, a lot of these nests, uh, well peregrine nests on cliff, uh, merlin um, I'm not sure where merlin nests but a lot of waders nest on the ground, for instance the curlew and are very sensitive to predation uh, so you know forestry can harbour predators uh, is one of the the impacts, and there's the Curlew project that's making headway on protecting some of these iconic species. Just on the Upland survey, uh, the objectives of the Upland survey, and it started in 2009 with the scoping Prevent devising methodologies and it's to classify and map the uh, location and area of upland habitats within a range of upland sites using standard schemes faucet and the annex habitat classification uh, but also plant communities um, and there's new kind of developing Irish vegetation classification for plant communities because these are like the building blocks of habitats and um, and these are where all these beautiful uh, species and species communities kind of uh, are occurring and have to be identified and understood to be able to protect them. Uh, then to assess the conservation status of a suite of upland and associated lowland annex habitats and to improve knowledge on the plant communities and flora that make up the habitats and... Uh, as I said, the main habitats are, that we're doing the upland survey would be the heats and the bogs, you know, alpine heats, wet dry heats, blanket bog, transition marsh, alpine fens, and the rocky habitats. So, you know, they and maybe the upland uh, tall herb, although... We don't, I think we're assessing it, but we're mapping it at the moment. Methodologies devised during the scoping study are explained in this wildlife manual, which is on our website, uh, www.nbws.ie. So, you know, all the methods are, you know, in detail described there. And then some revision of this, um, there's no actual published revision, but we are adding uh, some uh, extra sort of data, you know, to the survey surveys as we go, uh, but uh, we can add them to the manual at some point, there's not that many, but we are kind of trying to keep the methodology so that we have comparison between years. So when we go back to look at plots, we can understand whether things have changed by uh, measuring similar p- parameters. Uh, this year, we're, the survey is going to, it's just started and it's going to map uh, the sheep Bloom mountain habitats and it says. Condition there, so um, that just says the plots are distributed across the site. So you've you've plots, you know, in different habitats. So you have to decide what the habitats are first, and then you have to kind of, you know, maybe have a random uh, array of, ha- of plots, you know, across you know, each of these habitats that we're assessing, and then you know the, this really? will inform strategies. Uh,
0: Sorry uh, Katrina, just sorry, to remind you uh, I'd like to leave, I just time. like to leave a little bit of time for questions at the end. Just to remind you yeah. Time,
1: tell, yeah. tell me what time what time to finish.
0: Uh, well another we're we've about fifteen Five minutes. Uh, oh no, no, we've about fifteen minutes left. So I'd 20 twenty minutes. I'd just like to
1: have Oh, a few, is that all you've left for time?
0: Yeah, we've yeah, we're, yeah. Uh, or just we like to leave a few minutes at the end for questions, that's all.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I can go very quickly actually to a lot of these because uh, the foundation is there. Uh, so that's just showing you the site surveyed to date. So there's 20 sites surveyed. And uh, so they range from Carlingford to Cormorra, the Galtees, and then uh, Kaha, uh, sites in Killarney National Park, Mount Brandon, these are all SACs, Mish, and then there's the Sleafauti Mountains there in the mid-west, uh, Midwest, Neffin isn't a designated site uh, that was surveyed. It's got very good alpine heaths, Curran, uh, uh, out on Akal and More, uh, and Ox Mountains, and then Ben Benbulbin and uh, Ru uh, Slieve League, and that's and then uh, we're going to Shief Blooms uh this this season. So. Again, I think I've, I've touched on this already. It's just the how you know reporting for Article 17 under the circuit, So all the things we have to measure, and then this is just on active bog. It's um, some of the criteria we might look at. You know, would be uh, sphagnum cover, microtopography, the fibrous layer on the top, and we might increase the size of a relevate four by four because active bog have priority status and. Uh, It's defined as still supporting a significant area of vegetation that is normally peat forming. So it's characteristic bog vegetation and it's very important for carbon sequestration again. uh, That's showing a plot being assessed. Uh, Commonage data is also looked at uh, from the past and compared to see whether we can evaluate trends. Uh, That's just showing the number of sites and the number of plots that have been assessed. And that's just a table that would show a result from a site and that one would be the mountains. So under area structure and function, future prospects, and an overall assessment. So you can see red isn't good and green is favorable conservation status. So there's quite a lot of, you know, uh, unfavorable condition habitats. Um, The wet heats, uh, the the dry heats, the Alpine and boreal heats. Well, future prospects looks okay on that one. Blanket bog, not looking good. Maybe the Rockies are, you know, partly okay. Uh, it's just showing impacts maybe of uh, stocks, stock grazing. You know, that's Wilray, the mulray, the nardus is growing on the bear peat there. But, you know, if you have excessive levels, there isn't a lot of palatable species. And if uh, animals are hard pressed, it ends up erosion and trampling um, and peat silts going into the rivers. That's a nest of a meadow pit. But just showing you, you know, the ground nesting and also that they need all this vegetation, not bare repeat, you know, support their, their lives. And this is Mulray again, and it's a good illustration just of, of you know, various impacts. In the foreground, there's Heather, it's very tightly grazed, a lot of maybe an artist. In the background, then you can see eroding areas on the edges, um, and that can be from various causes. Um, generally you know man human impact of various kinds your forestry in the background can be the hydrology and then here you have a grazing you've a fence so you have a grazing differential you've heavy grazing on the on the uh well left side of that uh image as compared to the right so um you can imagine impacts on water quality as well and then this is just from Wicklow here and from the Cromer mountains burning as uh, devastating effect on you know nesting birds as well as the whole uh, system uh, you, you get uh, there's no peat formation and there's runoff and there's no shelter um, and it's, uh, greenhouse gas is a bit emitted and this is this is Wicklow here and up Tight. and then the middle one is in sleeve And on the bottom right is just sausage machine cutting. And, you know, they have a much greater impact probably than, you know, face bank cutting had in, in, in the old days. And this one here, you're just seeing uh, again drainage, but also there's a, a line there that uh, shows the bogs being cut by sausage machine called like a chainsaw can go down very deep, a metre or more, and it makes it difficult to block drains and hold water, and it can destabilise the slope. And on the top right then is a restored bog at Kipur. The base of Kapure was a flat area. It wasn't badly uh, damaged, but there were drains and they blocked, and it's really a, a very good uh, illustration of... A good site and then this is just listing all the um very not all but some of the key uh policies uh, legislation conventions uh, plans you know including climate um so i'll, I'll move on past that and then car- carbon well if the bog has to cover and this is from wicklow mountains where andromeda the uh, bog woes grow if it has a good cover of typical bog vegetation and especially the mosses, it's probably storing carbon. It's probably taking it from the atmosphere, but it's very easy to change that um, uh, into a carbon or uh, greenhouse gas gas emitting system. Uh, Ireland has 8% of the global resource of blanket bog and Scotland is the most important country in Europe for this habitat and since the UK has now left the EU, Ireland holds the bulk of the EU resource of blanket bog, so we have a big responsibility there and peatlands, including blanket bog, have a unique capacity to fix and store carbon in the accumulating peat. And even though they cover only 3% of the Earth's lands, they're responsible for more than 30% of worldwide carbon storage. And the key thing is, depends on maintenance of a stable high water table, that is no more than five to 10 centimeters below the bog surface for at least 9% of the time. As low water allows air infiltration and hence microbial decomposition, which releases carbon as carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And then you have dissolved organic carbon entering the streams uh, as well as silt in degraded bogs. So I think uh, restoration is where it's leading. projects carry life, uh, interreg, um, EU life, wild Atlantic nature is a huge. Program now the northwest. I think you might be having a talk on that, um, and then we have a small pilot project with Intel, just testing out restoration again in Wicklow, and measuring water quality and measuring um, greenhouse gases. So we're hoping to be able to kind of link the greenhouse gas signal emission with vegetation communities. And the European Investment Bank has now uh, committed to supporting investment in uh, restoration. It's what they say to revitalize nature and improving resilience to a changing climate. So bugs are sensitive to climate change, but they're also a sort of help in reducing the, the worst impacts if we can, you know, uh, get them back to peat forming systems. So this uh, Peatland Community Engagement Scheme that NPWS run this year is closed applications, but it's five hundred total uh, was available this year and a maximum grant of 25,000 uh, in 2002 Um a max of 75% of the project eligible costs yeah, were provided and a whole range of things there you can see recreational immunity, invasive species control um, even mentions fire control I think in that and um, Raising awareness, uh, community work around sites, site protection. So that that uh, you know there are more uh, instruments funding coming. Um, finally, just uh, acknowledge the work of the team and credit for the many photographs that they have have taken. And I um, I can't name them all, but the consultants were back. Uh, consultants, and they had a, a huge uh, team of field surveyors, excellent people, like Dr. Rory Hodge and Joan Denier and um, Philip Pern and all, a lot of people, um, and they were just images from the internet. And then there's just a list of reports there. So thank you very much. i sorry uh, I went on a bit long.
0: That's all right, Katrina. thanks very much. So but, I need uh, to stop
1: uh, sharing here, I yeah, think.
0: if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thanks.
0: Um, and it, it's reflected in the Q&A. There's a, there's a wealth of experience and knowledge in all of those slides, Katrina. Um, I mean, you can there's see lot, from the detail in it. Um, uh, and that's been... Uh, a lot of
1: work done.
0: Uh, yeah, acknowledged there in the, in, in the Q&A. Um, one, uh, one area that... Um, no, yeah, person, there we are. Catherine's is going to look at the, through the Q and A's there, but one thing that, that has often struck me and you, and it, it's a kind of, um, when you mentioned ACL as well, I mean, uh, you often wonder whether there's environmental benefits in the lowland or particularly in the uplands. Is yeah. there any examples internationally? I mean, we've had a few in Ireland with, say, lamb of, you know, where you can monetize for the communities that are in living in those areas that you could sell yes. produce with, with a premium. I mean,
1: um, yes, you can, and I think there is a move towards. Uh, people love to have local brands, uh, locally produced, and and there are models on the continent. Now I don't know them, but I know that they're there. You know, uh, people make uh, a lot more sort of uh, use of as well the Natura two thousand sites as a kind of brand. You know, if they're farming on them, but obviously it's critical that uh, they're not causing damage, that it's sustainable. So it would have to be very low intensity and on the more robust, you know, habitats there. You know, like maybe the drier heats and grasslands rather than the bogs, uh, or the wet heats. So yeah,
2: Um, it is. Again,
1: yes, I definitely, and I think maybe the Community Wetlands Forum in Ireland uh, might have some information on that. Uh, There's, there, there's information on a lot of websites as well on that sort of thing. Natura 2000 branding, even Honey produced, you know, from Heather and all these things from protected sites. They have an added value and an attraction for people. Yeah. Catherine.
0: Catherine.
2: Okay. Those questions
0: um, coming in there, you might have to pull a few of them together because we haven't got a whole lot of time. And the,
2: and the main thing is that the, the talk and the presentations will be up on the website, Andy, if some people are asking that. And also to, to re emphasize that this is the start of four, um, four, four talks, and some of the, the, this is kind of laying the basis for where we start from, and maybe some of the more, the management side will be discussed in in, in, yes. in, the, in yeah. the future weeks. So really appreciate the, the the detail that we'll have. For use by us and um, just one question there have any of the plots that you have surveyed or has been surveyed been revisited and is there any change in habitat condition
1: we um because we had no baseline surveys for the sacs um because designation happened you know in quite a rush for Ireland uh, these are baseline surveys uh, so we haven't revisited these plots but we will be,
0: will be I yeah. think
1: starting next year revisiting uh, but we have uh, looked at commonage framework uh, data on heather height, heather cover, and bare peat, and compared them with our uh, parameters, and sometimes we've seen improvement in height and cover of heather, uh, so, you know, we're using that as a, an, an indicator of trend. Uh, sometimes there's a decline, there might be more bare, bare peat in some instances, uh, but there's a mixed result, but there, you know, it is quite useful to use that data, which is from about the year 2000, uh, 2006. So, you know, it's uh, up on 20 years, Uh, but they didn't map habitats then. They mapped um, damage rather than habitats.
2: What are the effects Mm. of forestry on conserving upland blanket bogs is one question
1: multiple effects you know that there's effects on on fauna anyway and on predators and uh, a lot of uh, birds won't they won't nest near them and uh, predators uh, you know make their way out of there but uh, there's a huge hydrological effect depends on whether they're upslope downslope whether they're drains what direction the drains run how old the plantation is whether it's closed canopy if it's a young plantation it's open canopy and you still have bog vegetation and it's on flat ground and you know it's not growing well there's very good restoration potential there if it's been there a long while while you can get fracturing in the peat, drying out, you can get conduits of water, so you can have quite uh, an uphill struggle. Just forgive the pun to try and restore such areas, but they can also have an impact on drain, focusing drain drainage water onto areas and maybe cause erosion, potentially even peat failures. So it's a whole area. We're doing some research on peat failures, not related to forestry, but related to uh, a wind farm uh, and two uh, forested sites but there was no activity there at the time but there's legacy issues
2: and Katrina, uh, so the they have to be looked at And Katrina would the same effect be on where there's severe undergrazing and scrub encroachment, would that have kind of the same effects as forestry? As uh, so now, if a blanket bog is in good condition, it's
1: wet and waterlogged, and if trees won't grow on it, neither will scrub. So, but with bogs drying out, yes, yeah, scrub will invade, and you'll have pineus contorta, especially uh, lodgepole pine, that just spreads out onto heaths from adjacent plantations. Uh, so you know, it's it's um, it's a problem. Yeah. If, if the bog is wet yeah. and it's restored, it's more resilient to a lot of these kind of um, impacts or effects. Uh,
2: more of a comment, important to consider the existing and future use of uplands for recreation and tourism and how this should be integral in the sustainable planning, management and protection of uplands. And just one question for you there yes. about the, the, what role does NPWS have in the protection of uplands where new greenways and blueways are envisaged?
1: Well, you know, for say the protected sites, uh, any developments will will be an activity requiring consent at the least, you know, uh, and or requiring, you know, planning permission at the most, you know, uh, or uh, appropriate assessment if it's in an SAC. So these things, the impact of such a thing, uh, there should be alternative routes proposed and see which is the least impacting, you know. Uh, we're very in favour of them, you know. And there are areas that are robust and can take that, but there are other areas that are extremely sensitive. And a track even can uh, start erosion um, and open sleeve League, You know, there's there's quite a lot of erosion from you know walkers, just you know popular routes. So care and and NPW does have a, have have a role, especially for the uh, SBAs, NHAs, etc.
2: Okay, Andy. I know you're coming. You can tell me now. Just one more Catherine. go on. Yeah, one more. Well, it's more of a, again a, a comment that the question is: is what longer term financial incentives are there for farmers to restore peatlands? So we'll be covering some of them the next two weeks. But perhaps have you any comment on finance financing? Incentives? I think
1: fi- I think finance is finally becoming available, and I think we'll have what we'll have is a skills shortage and the capacity to actually use the finance because climate, because of the importance of bogs for climate and the fact that Ireland is such a resource and because there's quite extensive degraded areas, there's a lot of work to be done. And so we need to build capacity, upskill, and be ready to do this. And we have to upscale the work because it's, you know, we have no time really to waste, but at the same time, it's costly. Uh, and if we make mistakes, you know, you can't really go back and do it again, and nobody will give you any more money. So it has to be sound uh, science, you know, to, to underpin it. Um, so NPWS, um, um, you know, get funding. We, we we draw down funding, as other people do, from EU. Uh, Interreg, there's been quite a lot of work done. Fidendari, Bog and the Ox Mountains had 3000 nearly 3000 dams installed uh, just last uh, winter on, on a flat area of drained bog There hadn't been planted, just drained, and really good work was done there. But the machine operators have to be highly skilled as well, and they've been working on the raised bogs. So, we you know they come over from there. So, there's a lot of work and a lot of upskilling required in the science and in the practi- practical work. So great opportunities. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank cool. you. once again. And just to say the full recording um, of the, the webinar this morning will be available on our website together, actually with a podcast, uh, which you can download from your whatever source you get your podcast from. And also, um, Katrina's uh, presentation will also be available because there's some wonderful photos and, and detail within the presentation. Just Katrina um, mentioned that we're beginning a series in the uplands. Next week, we'll be looking at the Comora upland communities and our colleague, uh, Katrina Foley from Chagas will be joined by the project manager an ex-colleague of ours, Owen Carton. Um, and they will go through uh, what's happening uh, in, in the in the comers. Um, so from Katrina, Catherine, and myself, just to thank Yvonne Maher in the background who pulls all the strings to keep us all uh, in line. Uh, thank you very much, Yvonne. Uh, so until next week, thank you for joining us and hope you can join us again. Uh, this time next week for oh, another series thank you very much Let's have a safe weekend you've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk signpost series the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar for more visit chagisk.ie and you can also rate, review and subscribe to the signpost series on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.